that's the sound of children playing together at school. Until very recently, all across the globe, those echoing voices were as common as the wind. Now, not so much. Hopefully, that will be changing soon. There are very few who would disagree with the idea that our children, their safety, their ability to learn, are of primary importance to all of us as a community. But sometimes, maybe I should say, all too often, what we do in that realm, how we treat our children, does not align with that sentiment. This is particularly true with our schools, which many regard as the clearest reflection of how a society values its children and, by extension, nurtures and grows its future. The other sound that has been missing from our children's lives is the voice of the teacher, together with them in the classroom, encouraging, cajoling, pointing the way, providing the substance, the waypoints, and the glue for their learning journey. Among many other things, Jessa Bree Moreno is a teacher of teachers through a program she founded with her colleague Mariah Rankin-Landers called Studio Pathways. She describes this work as helping educators give birth to the rigor and magic inherent to the art of teaching. As a theater artist and teacher herself, she knows this territory intimately. She also knows that if we, as a society, are going to deliver on the promise embodied in all those joyous and expectant voices once again filling the air back in the classrooms and playgrounds of the world, our teachers will be at the critical center. We spoke about this and much more in early 2021. This is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and community transformation. I'm Bill Cleveland. Part one, the art of teaching. So Jessa, um, if someone were to put a, a moniker on you or to your work, what would it be? I often refer to myself as a midwife of creativity, mm. thought, creative energy. Um, mm. I think of it in my dual roles as an educator and artist as holding space for the birth of someone else's creative thinking and inquiry. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like that idea that if something goes wrong, here I am to hold the space, <laughs> but pretty much it's your experience here. And I've got some guidance for you. In the field of creative midwifery, what are some of the skills or capacities that uh, serve you? I guess the training I had in theater, I actually did training in Italian street theater a million years ago. And something about risk and disruption and attempting to be present with the soul or spirit of a thing is the precise energy that education is in need of. Yeah. So you do have a significant relationship to education. So before we go into some of the specifics, how did you come to this work that you do as a creative midwife? I think at first by way of necessity, like most teaching artists or artists who teach, I needed a way to make a living at the time as a <laughs> single parent, navigating moving from being a regional theater artist to something that would give me roots in one place longer than three months at a time. So I fortunately, my mother's also an artist educator, taught ceramics her whole life. So I think I had it in my bones, whether I wanted to or not. 
and then found my way to Oakland Technical High School, big comprehensive public high school in Oakland, California, where I got to start the performing arts program that's been there for the last 15 years now. So growing up, your mom was a maker and were you interested and excited by that realm of work early on as a kid? That's funny you asked that, Bill, because I was not. I, I told her I was going to become the president of a tall building with no art on my walls because art had ruined my life. Uh, <laughs> yes. yes. Rebellion. Rebellion. Absolutely. But I did grow up also daughter of a single mother on the floor of my mom's art studio in clay. And she's the sculptor of primarily public monuments to peace. So sculptures of Martin Luther King today, his birthday. She's his family's favorite portraitist of his, of his image. Cesar Chavez, different activists through her art. So her work was really developing art that was her activism. So I was witness to that as the base culture of my life. And you couldn't escape it. It rubbed off on you, even though you rebelled. <laughs> I couldn't escape it. No, it seemed in the end the most meaningful thing to do with one's life. Yeah. It is interesting how that that opposition that occurs, how often it ends up returning to its its mothership very much. So talk about education. Much of the work I know that you do focuses on making and doing experiential work, both with teachers and with students. Do you talk about why you think that's an important element of learning for humans? Sure. Yeah. So I guess I can tell it through a story at Oakland Technical High School. I had the journey from artist to teacher. I think some t- teachers have the opposite journey. They realize later that they're also an artist and that teaching is an art. Mm-hmm. But seeing that I was one of the only spaces on campus that was able to operate without being beheld to standardized tests was one of the few places that was actually not a segregated space. It was large comprehensive high school, very ethnically, racially diverse school. However, the classrooms themselves are completely segregated and and still are to this day. So the arts and the performing arts were one space students were coming together uh, and making meaning of everything else. So all of the other disciplines were... Mm coming together and this is the place that a young person could grapple with them and make them make sense in their own lives. And so I think the more I realized that what I was talking about to other teachers was was arts integration or integrating or doing, doing education through the arts because it's liberating, because it gives students voice, decision, capacity to practice being an adult. All of those elements were present in the educational experience outside of this old standardized test-bound routine. Did you have a sense, was the school enthusiastically supportive of your refuge that you created there? You know, I think that's the old thing of asking forgiveness and and not permission (laughs) in terms of taking (laughs) some risks. I went ahead and did things that I felt were important for the students. So for example, first year when there hadn't been the arts, they'd been cut out for so many years. And we did an open mic Friday. And so I would say, no, not all of the campus was excited about having large rap battles on campus every Friday, but boy, did I get the most amazing performers to show up who would have never shown up otherwise and and become core to the building of that program. Students truly with a passion for, for performing. 
Well, and also there are things at school that a lot of kids don't look forward to. And it's great to have something that is really exciting that's happening that's maybe even surprising, right? Yeah, the way that students who have been marginalized or or failing their other subject matter, suddenly if they're center stage as a star performing with brilliance, it's a way for even other teachers to have an asset-based understanding of them, to really see them for their true selves because they're actually bringing their true selves to the work rather than trying to fit into a model that wasn't created to serve them at all. Yeah, so 15 years you were there. I was there 10, so I've been been gone since uh, 2015, so I guess six years now. Part two, Studio Pathways. Okay, so you're in your new chapter now, really, comparatively, and you've created this uh, Studio Pathways as an advisor to people involved in education in all kinds of areas. you want to talk about that? Yes, I do. So it started as myself and one other, Jan Hunter, I was the only other theater teacher in all of Oakland when I was teaching wow. theater, which just think about that for a second. We've got Oakland with incredible artists coming out of Oakland. We can think of some Academy Award winners, right? And two-theater artists, teaching artists in any of the public schools. So it started with Oakland Theater Arts Initiative, training up history and English teachers to become theater teachers at their school site so that students had access. And yeah. What a great idea. And you had support for that. I had some support for that. Yeah. So there were some great measures in Oakland that the taxpayers were paying for some arts programming for several years, understanding that they'd been really cut out because of Prop 13 and all of that. And so a couple of measures passed that helped focus funding on the arts for that time period. You created, in essence, creative leadership among non-arts teachers. And does that persist? Uh, Several of those teachers are still teaching theater. Several of those programs are award-winning. I'm thinking of Amazing Awele Makiba, who's at Skyline High School, and she was just in the presenting the HBO special around the MLK Oratorical Fest that takes place each year. And wow. she went through that program. She was already an amazing theater artist, but that was a part of that cohort of folks. That gave me my love for teaching teachers. I think that experience of getting to work with other educators. And being inside, can we transform education together? That got me very excited about that. And so I moved on to the Alameda County Office of Education, where I teamed up in co-leadership with my partner in crime now, Mariah Rankin-Landers, who's my Studio Pathways co-director, co-founder. And she and I were co-directors of a program called the Integrated Learning Specialists Program there. And so that was training teachers in arts integration, basically. So we would go through a series of learning about how to collaborate with their curriculum, how to think about assessment differently as dialogue with a student, with dialogue with the material, and really just how to engage themselves as artists, as educators in the classroom and shift the way they did education. So I know one of the tensions that all teachers have is how to fulfill the requirements, the structures the, the expectations of the system they work in, and sometimes under difficult circumstances with a lot of shifting demands. And every once in a while, someone comes around with a great new idea. But one of the things that 
I know you've worked with the Kennedy Center as well. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. one of the things I've really appreciated about the Kennedy Center is they treat teachers like they're very special. And it seems to me that's what you're doing as well. It's not like here's another continuing education <laughs> credit for you. It's you are an artist and you can be a creator in the classroom. Is that accurate? That's accurate. That's it. I think that's really it is elevating the art of teaching to its highest level, which is really this transmission of wisdom, right? If we look back through human history, we're talking about a very different frame than the last hundred years of what education is and how we pass on ethics and values and cultures and art forms through education. Those were the primary functions as well as tools for survival. And somehow all of that, including the tools for survival, seem a bit out the window with our industrialized education frame, right? Yeah, really tough. One of the other questions I had is that given your long history, if there's a story that has unfolded that really personifies what you feel is most powerful, beneficial about your work, you got one for us. I guess in, in thinking about the teachers, but I will point to our most recent work with the Solano County Office of Education, which people don't generally think of county offices of education as particularly transformative spaces. Mm -hmm. However, the folks who've come together there are doing work that is taking a long view. So we invite folks to use contemporary artists as their guides, long frame thinking, strategic daydreaming, right? It's a different way of, of approaching what they're looking at, thinking into the next seven generations in terms of outcomes, instead of just what do you want this mm. year or next year? And already we've seen one educator in particular, who's an art teacher in middle school, come to the realization that even though she's a tremendous art teacher teaching wonderful skills to her students, every single artist she presented to her students was white male Eurocentric person. And so she had the awakening of, oh no, <laughs> I didn't even notice this. That was what I was taught in art history. And so she went about that own, her own process of discovery of who am I going to center instead, who's representative of my students, her mostly Latinx students. And she just reframed her entire curriculum for the year using similar themes, similar concepts, but was able to just reframe. And the similar thing is happening in the county where us starting with land acknowledgements, very basic kind of restart for meetings or ritual for our meetings, means they're really internalizing that. Who are the indigenous folks? Are we collaborating with them? There's now an elementary school that's working with indigenous language and working with farming. And so we're just seeing these pieces of if we dream a little bit bigger and take some risks on behalf of our students, things are actually changing. I've been very moved by their work. So you work hands-on with teachers who are going to be teaching. Could you take me into some of the ways you engage them that really animates the ideas in real time? Yeah. So we work with a lot, the idea of a studio, studio pathway. So how do you reframe your classroom or educational setting or online setting as a studio? So we ask people to think about altering space and we tend to use both spellings of that word, right? We're going to alter our space by changing it in some way. And knowing that most cultures in the world do use altars in some way, how do you bring objects that bring you joy near you? How do you make your space more artful, more of a creative environment? So that's the first invitation we have for educators is to think of their classroom as the studio. We then 
focus on creative inquiry. So we ask educators to think about what are they actually curious about? What do they not know the answer to? And Mm -hmm. pose that question to their students and research it together, right? Let's go on a journey together and make it exciting in that way. Follow your passion. We then, I think one thing that makes Studio Pathways really unique and one of the reasons we left the County Office of Education was to focus on the concept of reconciliation or reconciliation. So taking from South African truth and reconciliation, the the knowledge that we really haven't had a practice of reconciliation in this country. That's why we're facing what we're facing right now. And so through that, educators need to be able to do power analysis in the classroom. They need to understand what's happening between teacher and student, between genders and races, and they need to understand what that means and how that plays out, and then their own role in either disrupting or perpetuating that. So that's a real key to to what we're asking people to do. And the way that we do it is through the arts. We'll point to contemporary artists in particular who are focused on this. I'm thinking of my own work with teachers. We're going to do a parallel analysis of our classroom sounds like a big challenge. So I really appreciate and understand that getting to that using the creative process rather than a PowerPoint is probably the only way to do it. Could you talk a little bit more about that? That is it. It's true. It's the only way to do it. It's something about being able to point outward at a third thing. So we'll do it through often, you know, looking at the work of a visual or contemporary or or conceptual artist. So what is this artist trying to say? We looked recently, for example, at the work of Amy Sherald. She was Michelle Obama's portraitist. If you know that Mm -hmm. portrait, it's beautiful Mm -hmm. dress. And she uses the concept of grayscale in coloring the skin of her characters. So she's using Mars yellow and black together as a way of blending colors and thinking about identity. So she's mm-hmm. using the metaphor, the, the color metaphor for identity. And so this will be something we'll ask our educators to go through is get your watercolors or even your tea and your coffee and paint your own grayscale self-portrait. What is your racialized wow. American identity? How does it come, how did it come to be? Can you tell that story? And can you tell the story of your students or allow them to do the same? So we come to, you know, understand this together. Again, shame is never useful in moving forward. So in ways that are artful, creative, mm-hmm. and show possibility on the other side, yeah. But on the flip side, inviting courage. And I'm assuming the, the sense of collective risk taking in that studio that you've created is an important element. That's right. Yeah. And I guess that's the last element too. My amazing colleague, Mariah, always is asking the question, do your lessons love your students? Mm -hmm. And let that be your standard. Let that be Mm -hmm. your core standard. And if they don't, go back and do some more of that power analysis, whatever you need to do to risk or disrupt on their behalf. And are the outcomes liberatory? Does someone have a sense of agency and will in the end through what they've experienced with you in their classroom? So how do teachers come to the studio? Are they referred? Do they sign up? All kinds of ways. We end up working a lot of the time with a county office, and then they'll have maybe a team of educators who want this kind of education, culturally responsive education or arts integration Mm -hmm. education, or even, you know, socio-emotional learning. So I feel like we're sitting at the bridge of where those three places merge. Really, it's just Mm -hmm. being a human being. 
on this earth. But in terms of education speak, those are the things that people are really looking for and know that they want, which is very exciting. And so any educator looking for that generally will work mostly in California. But as you said, we're working now with Michelle Obama's Legacy Project with the Turnaround Arts Network nationally and some other spaces that are really beautiful that way. And we also work with arts organizations who want to educate in this way. Part three. Now, more than ever. It really is exciting. Obviously, the world we live in now needs this more now than at any time, probably at least in my lifetime, is not just good intention, but good practice in basically trying to make a difference where people are trying to make a difference, giving them tools to work in a new way. That's a, That's quite a mission. That's a terrific thing. And the thing that I really appreciate is that in many ways, your curriculum is a challenge to the status quo and that there are people taking you up on it. Because not too long ago, this kind of work was a struggle to even make it happen. Yeah, I think one of the things that this moment has surfaced is this inequity by design that's always been there. It's really clear now going to the online space, going with the disruption that's happened in education because of the pandemic. It's just all obvious now. There's no getting around how inequitable the system has always been. And educators who do love their students want to do better by them. That's it. Most people do go into education with really good intent, even if their impact ends up being different along the way. And I think that's one of the saddest things is that so many people leave education because they recognize they're a part of a system that's doing harm. And so they leave. And instead, finding a way that they can enter with integrity and stay with integrity is a big deal. It's a very hard ask to, to make those disruptions. But once it happens, there's so much more joy in this kind of education for the teacher, for the student, that it seems like the only way that we're going to make it through to the other side. What a gift. And also, as there are so many teachers who came with an open heart and great intention, whose hearts have been, in some cases, broken, and to be shown a way of working that can allow them to once again fall in love with what it was they came for. And as you mentioned very earlier in our conversation, to see their students anew so that their capacity to love them rather than to fear them or to abide them actually flowers in the classroom. A teacher who's actually making uh, beautiful things happen with their students is a privileged person. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll even take that. I think that's such a good point, Bill. And I think that the take it a step further in just the demographics in this country right now of most educators, most K through 12 educators are white women, something like 83%. And it's about 51% of students identify as black or brown. The number of home languages that are not English is over 25% in our country. We have a real disparity between 
representation in the classroom too. And there's wonderful organizations like Black Teachers Project and other folks like working on making sure there's better representation of our students in the classroom, that teachers of color want to enter the profession. It's a viable profession that will bring them a livelihood and joy in their lives and being of service, but also for this moment, especially for white female identified teachers such as myself who teach primarily students of color really needing to do that work really like lifelong never-ending work of thinking about power and positionality that mm -hmm. you can't enter a classroom and not have that be something that you're grappling with and considering and so this is another reason that this kind of education that decenters the teacher and really puts the creativity on the student, the inquiry to the student, the critical thinking to the student is even that much more important, I would say, if there's a white educator mm -hmm. in the classroom, right? Because you're not entering your own wisdom as the high truth, but actually the students come with their own wisdom intact and you're there for them to build upon it. To be awed by it and reversing the pattern of authority. A lot of teachers aren't even aware that they're helping build layers in little minds that are just taking it in. You learn what you learn. Yeah. So one thing that, that you're interested in that I'm really interested in is brain science. I am not an expert, just someone who just reads voraciously and tries to f understand the science and the obvious place that you have focused your thinking about this is how people learn and how human creativity and the imagination function in the, the work of finding meaning in the world. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Isn't it funny that education focuses so little on actually cognitive awareness and thinking? It blows my mind. Yeah. So I know it's a yes. relatively new human science. So one of the thinkers that I really appreciate and, and friend of ours is Zaretta Hammond, who's done brilliant work on culturally responsive teaching in the brain. And so she's really elevated the understanding that the human brain is wired to, to learn through patterns, games, music, art, rhythm. That's how we have been wired as, as human beings. And so those are the pathways to actually acquisition of knowledge. So when we engage in those art forms, we are actually activating our brain's capacity at a much more full awareness and retention rate than we are otherwise when we're doing rote memorization, for example. Although memorizing a poem by rote, for example, is one of those patterns. There's ways it's not like we're throwing everything out, but I think that's really important. And then the other piece of that is culture, right? That the way we understand learning is through culture. And one of the other things she brings up that I think is so essential is this difference between individuated knowledge and collective wisdom or learning together. So we are really talking a lot about how do we move from this very individualistic, I get an A, I'm on my way to uh, success, regardless of everyone else's failure, to how do we as a community or a collective come together to lift one another up in the acquisition of wisdom? Yeah. So this is great because in theater, that's what it's all about. Ensemble work in yeah. theater is this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and ensemble yeah. work in music as a musician, it's all about yeah. tuning in, 
picking up on each other's rhythms. I'm not a musician. Maybe you can say more. Actually, interestingly enough, one of the areas that I've been looking at a lot is evolutionary psychology. People who are literally asking the question, what is the evolution of human understanding, human learning, human, human thinking? How has it evolved? And just being awestruck at wading through science speak, but actually coming to know, oh, wow, those early humans probably were making what we call music before they spoke, before language occurred. And the primary motivation for it was to capture the attention of the tribe so that cooperation could occur, which meant surviving or not. So it's that's pretty elemental. And as you say, that wiring is old and deep Mm. and it's there to be plugged into us. We making our way in the world. Yeah, that really moves me to think about that. That's how we will survive or not. It sure seems an appropriate way of educating for this moment in time where we understand very really that is where we are at. Yeah. Part four, making space for belonging. So that leads me to this final question, which is we are in a moment in time and we're in the forest. And so there's a lot of trees that are around, but we don't necessarily see all of them. But from your perspective, what is the work, especially with your focus on kids and education, teachers, what's the work uh, going forward that needs to happen? I think just what you said, really recognizing the collective uh, struggle we're all inside of and coming up with the new metaphors, the new symbols. As cognitive science tells us, language influences our thought. My friend Laritsky is a cognitive scientist who's really discovered, really named that our language determines how we think. And that's something we've really come to know. So what are the languages that are going to carry us into a bright future? Do We don't have them yet, so we have to invoke the artist within ourselves, the artist within our young people, the artist within our teachers and educators to imagine something else because it does not exist in this moment. So we have to use the arts. And if each of us is invoking our gifts, our internal gifts that we were brought here with intact, that's a bit of an anti-capitalist thing to do, to bring one's own gifts to the table and pursue them all the way. So I think we have to find ways that people's gifts are honored and they don't end up having to become a cog in a system and a wheel. I think that is killing our spirits in many ways and within whichever institution we're inside of. So can we break open the institutions enough to actually contain the human spirit? I think that's it. And I'm so astounded at how many people are ready for this. Everyone I speak to actually, and I know I'm in the Bay Area of California. <laughs> However, speaking across the country, people are ready to take that risk because they you know where we are and we love our children. We do. A little story just to share with you. I just put two episodes to bed, a, a guy, a theater guy, from Connecticut, who describes himself as uh, a communist Jew from the Northeast, who just came back from five years in coal country in Letcher County, Kentucky, working in a project called Performing Our Future, which really literally through an organization called Apple Shop, which is has 50 years of working 
in in coal country in that part of the world literally trying to help people who have both self-isolated and been isolated by their by geography and poverty to find new pathways to power and one story he tells that really personifies i think what we started talking about which is experiential learning he said the conversations he has with people who are he basically describes it as a retail politics that don't even live in my shopping mall they are very different from his and being able to say but if we fix a hole in a roof together if we dig a hole in the earth together if we make music together if we organize solar panels together and save money together all that goes by the wayside it's what we do together that forms the story it was the core of our conversation i think it resonates with this conversation which is every child every teacher comes into the studio with this rich body of story some of which have been ignored some of which are latent or evolving and you're saying bring it on yeah that's what we're here for let's go for it yeah and 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 i love that story so much because it's true that the arts and creating together becomes its own cultural value right where there may not be other commonalities if you're in the act of creation together you're creating a new cultural reality in that space an invitation as john powell likes to say the the idea of belonging right creating a world mm-hmm. where we have a sense of belonging and someone has something to offer that space and and honoring what everyone has to offer that space is key the the other thing about this moment we're in is that most educators we haven't experienced a liberatory education ourselves and so we don't know what it looks like and mm-hmm. so we need to be able to find pathways for that too that we are representing freedom for and with our students and so that students can imagine it for themselves i think that's just somehow a great piece of the transformative moment we're in right now it really reminds me of how often i've come with teachers and i've said so what are you most excited about and they go what do you mean i said what's the coolest thing that you've done recently what what have you learned what's blown your mind what's sparking you this is the business right and it's you're poking a thing that's a little numb the imagination and the coolest thing is when you bring making the creative process to teachers they have an endless supply of cool things exciting things look what i learned look what i did with their students and they go oh yeah i learned too <laughs> oh yeah one of my favorite groups of teachers were the pre-kindergarten preschool teachers in berkeley unified school district and many of them were like grandmothers for the community not all of them but the the majority and so on the first day of our classes, we said, so what artistry do you have? Oh, none, none, none. I am not an artist. I only quilt. I only cook. I only make dolls. I only make this craft from my culture. So this abundance of artistry poured out, but this recognition that it's not signed and put on a museum wall, so it's not art. De- right. Pulling that myth out that we're, we really are yep. all artists. Yeah. Exactly. And we're inventing and making things every single day just to get by. (laughs) Absolutely. So if someone saw this podcast and said, oh, wow, I want to be in the studio with Jessa, how would they do that? How would they 
reconnect to what you're up to. Thanks to my <laughs> co-director. We're on studiopathways.org, studiopathways on all of the social media. Find us there and connect and we'll get back to folks if they want to think about bringing this to their own educational system, whatever that might be. So Jessa, um, I really appreciate uh, your sharing your your stories and your insights and your ideas. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, I really appreciate you asking me. It's really nice to get to talk about it. Yeah, well, talk is pretty much what we're all about here on this show. So listeners, if you're of a mind, it would be great if you could give us a little talk back. So let us know what you think of our show by dropping us a line at csac at artandcommunity.com by subscribing to the show and sharing the show with your friends and colleagues. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and produced by yours truly, Bill Cleveland. Our editor is the ever-accurate Andre Neve. Our glorious soundscape and theme are by Judy Munson. And our inspiration comes from you and the mysterious Ook 235. Adios.